Psalm 53. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will put the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online right now, we're going to put the text up on your screen uh, when we get to that point. Although, uh, while putting it on screens is a great thing, we... we Technology is not the enemy here. Uh, we, we love the tools that God gives us to uh, pursue his word the best. I happen to find, just in my own experience, God just kind of blesses having his word in your hands, in your lap, as it's being proclaimed. And so uh, if you have a physical Bible, grab that. I, I think God will use it in a big way. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one you can call yours, uh, we actually would love to fix that for you. We have a ton of Bibles around here. We would love to give some of them away. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, get a hold of me, uh, whether after we're done here, pull me to the side or in the comment section, uh, and I would love to get you a Bible in your hands because I think God will use it in a, in a massive way. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we believe that God, uh, that, that God wants to use his word to make himself known, and, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, it puts you at a disadvantage, and so we can change that pretty quickly this morning if you're interested. Uh, so we are taking month of September to dive as deeply as we can into the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms. And, and I told you last week that we were going to put our foot on the gas for the next several weeks, and, and you kind of saw some of that play out. We've already read, uh, had three different scripture readings this morning. We don't normally have three scripture readings in a, in a Sunday morning service, although who's going to argue that it's a bad thing, right? Like, is anybody going to say, no, we should have less Bible in church? That's a terrible argument, right? And so this month, we're putting our foot on the gas with that, and we had three readings and I think God's going to bless that effort. Uh, now, uh, if uh, each week preaching and, and reading through the Psalms, I think it can pretty much stand on their own. Like, like when we walked through the book of Habakkuk together, there were, there were these layers of thought that, that we needed to kind of make sure that you had locked down and make sure you were remembering and seeing through the lens of uh, in order to, to understand what was in front of us for the week. And so we don't really have to do that with the Psalms. Uh, that there's, there's no kind of logical flow that's got to be kind of locked down in order for us to, to really kind of process each psalm on each week, but I do think, I do think that we've got to approach the psalms on their own terms. And I said a, a few times now over the last couple of weeks, but I think it bears repeating, is that you've got to remember that whenever you're reading, or in my case, preaching through the psalms, we've got to remember to lean more towards feeling what the psalmist, the psalm writer felt, rather than simply doing what the psalm writer did. All right? uh, it's not that what they did didn't matter, but it's not their aim. What they're calling you to is to experience something massive. Rather than, rather than giving some kind of logical flow of this thing occurred or, or this thing is true, so therefore now go and do this, or therefore now go and live this way, or think this way, view the world this way. The psalm writers instead invite you in to experiencing the depth of emotion, the range of ups and downs that God's people naturally experience as they attempted to follow Jesus or follow God. The psalmist instead invites you into experiencing the heart and the struggle, I think, of God's people as they live. And we, and we said it last week, sometimes they get it right and sometimes they very much don't. Sometimes they get it horribly wrong. But man, it is always real. Always real. God's people in the Old Testament, they failed way more often than they ever succeeded. Kind of like us, right? They failed way more often than they ever succeeded, but rain or shine, what came out of them when they wrote poetry, is just, it's just genuine. It's good. 
And it also sounds a whole lot more like our own hearts than we like to publicly admit to, right? We, we, we all have our put-together moments, but then there's these other moments that we don't like to talk about so much where we have the really big highs and the really deep lows and a whole bunch of grand sweeps in between the two. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of put-together moments, but I also have a lot of moments where I can, I can count where the psalms sound very, very familiar. And so we positioned ourselves this morning to look at Psalm 53. So you ready to dig into it? We're going to start with the superscript. Uh, in some translations, it, they mark this as verse 1. Other translations, they, they start verse 1 a little bit later. Uh, the, the verse headings, those aren't original, but the superscript is a part of the original text. And so we're going to treat it as a superscript today. All right? uh, but no matter, where, um, no matter what it says, if it's just a superscript or verse 1, it's a part of the text. And so verse 53 starts out by saying, To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskil of David. Okay, so there, there's a lot going on there, right? But no matter who you are, you probably caught, hey, this one's written by David. Like, you got that much. This is one of David's psalms. About half of the psalms, we think, belong to David. Uh, there's some debate over about 10 to 15 of them. And so depending on where you come down on, on that argument, he's, he can either be attributed to just less than half or just more than half of the psalms. And so there's some back and forth, uh, but it doesn't really matter. David gets accounted for about half of the psalms. And, and because, because of his outsized influence, David kind of gets seen as the progenitor of the psalms. He's kind of the guy that you naturally think of when you start thinking Psalms. Like when you think of the law, who do you think of? You think of Moses, right? When you think of the prophets, you think of Elijah. Solomon is the wisdom guy and David's the pretty boy, the poetic pretty boy hanging out in the quad playing his harp, all right? That's David. He's the psalmist. He's the songwriter. And this led Charles Spurgeon, a really famous preacher from England uh, about 150 years ago. It's a guy you should totally learn who he is. Right? Uh, but this led uh, Charles Spurgeon to title his commentary on the book of Psalms, The Treasury of David, right? even though half of them don't belong to the dude. And so while the entire Psalter gets associated with, with David, this one does actually belong to him. But like I said, there's a whole bunch going on in the superscript, most notably those two words that you might struggle to pronounce if you were reading it publicly. So as we read through the Psalms together, we keep coming to these words that we're not really sure what they mean. Have you noticed that yet? We're so uncertain, in fact, that instead of trying to translate the word, we, we instead transliterate the word and just kind of leave it standing on its own. We, we, we've already done that with the word Selah, right? And the word Shagayanoth which is a fun word. You should name your next kid Shagayanoth. And here in Psalm 53, we get to add two new ones to our, our library, to our lexicon. But before we look at them, I, mean, I think now is probably as good a moment as any, good an opportunity as any to go ahead and teach something I think is really, really important when it comes to the principles of Bible translation. So while it might seem easier sometimes, I, like, I, I definitely have found myself in this place. It might seem easier sometimes to have a translator just go ahead and say what they think it is and go ahead and translate the word and tell us what their best guess of the word means. The, the reality is you don't actually want your Bible translators to do that. You don't want them to guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, for most unclear things in the Bible, there's usually a really 
really obvious pathway into figuring out, uh, narrowing down what some things mean, and maybe even sometimes locking in on a, a definition of the word. That pathway is almost always there. And so even though there's some debate, there's, there's a really clear pathway to say, okay, well, this is true, and this is true, and because these things are true, this is probably true too. And so we're pretty confident on this. And then they'll put that there, and then they'll add a little footnote, right? Um, if you have a Bible with footnotes, that's how that normally works. But if that pathway is not there, if it's not available, the very best thing a translator can do in that moment is to take their hands off of it, to take a step back and trust that God's word is actually more sufficient than their translation ability. And so instead of trying to force interpretation on that moment, they'll instead, what we call transliterate a word, they'll spell it out phonetically with, with English letters instead of the Hebrew letters or the Greek letters, and, and then they'll just let God do with it whatever God wants to do with it. Is he big enough to be trusted with that? I think so. We want our Bible translators to do exactly what they've done here. Not all Bible translations do that, but I think the best ones do. So what words do we get to learn today? Well, the first is mahalath, which just sounds fun, right? Mahalath. You got to get a, a good Hebrew swallow in there. Mahalath. And, and, and like all the others, how it's used it leads us to believe that it's some kind of musical notation, some kind of musical term. Why? Because they keep using it in the superscript. They keep using it in the explanation of what the psalm is. But what that musical term might be, no clue, no idea. All we've got are educated guesses. The best clue that we've got is that the root word in Mahalath sometimes, not always, but sometimes is used to talk about sickness that you're kind of undone and sick and weary. But honestly, it's a little bit of a stretch. It just kind of is. And so maybe, maybe the theory goes is that this song was written in sorrow. But again, you just don't know. Mahalath, there you go. The second word is a little bit clearer, though. Uh, not by much, but at least a little bit. We're told that this psalm is a masculine. And so we've got a better idea of what a maskil is because it's used way more often than Mahalath is. Uh, a bunch of psalms are, are called maskils. Uh, uh, JB read one earlier that was a maskil, right? And so we've got a better idea of what a maskil is. And, we're, and, and again, because of how it's used, we, we think that it's a, some kind of musical term. And, and there's some competing theories about uh, what that might mean. Uh, some think that it's a, a wisdom psalm. That's a, that's a fair argument. Uh, but the problem with that is that there are a whole lot of psalms that are called masculines that have nothing to do with wisdom. And so I personally think that that's kind of a weak argument. Uh, and so uh, the, the best theory, at least in my opinion, is that it indicates a, a song that's kind of written, a, that's played with a technical precision, if you want to call it that. It's, there's, a, there's a necessary skill and, and musicality that, that, that needs to be present in order to pull that song off, right? And we have songs like that in church, right? There are some songs that are really easy to play. And then there's some songs that aren't so easy to play. Like, there, the, some of the songs that you love the best and have asked us to do is like, we're not talented enough to pull that one off, all right? Yeah, there's sometimes a song, even congregational songs, that take a good bit of, of expertise and a good bit of technical precision in order to, uh, to, to make happen. And so regardless, though, of, of whatever those two words might mean, we do know that David wrote this, and we do know that he wrote it to someone specific. Who is it? The choir master, right? We learned about that guy last week. Who's the choir master? 
I don't know. We don't know who the choir master is, but we do know that they were in charge of leading the music in worship. It's a congregational song. Some songs are written and brought into the congregation. Other songs, like this one, are written specifically with the congregation in mind. And so whatever the style is, Slow, fast, sorrowful, upbeat, doesn't matter. We, the, so, the song is specifically written for the congregation, and because it's specifically written for the congregation, it means it's intended to teach something. It's intended to teach something. All congregational music teaches. And so, just like last week, the most appropriate question to ask, or at least the next appropriate question to ask is, well, what is David trying to teach us then? What's his aim here? Well, look at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Hey, we got a happy song. No? This doesn't feel like an upbeat one to you? Could you imagine this one playing on Caleb on your ride into the church this morning? Really sets the mood for worship, right? So we can debate all we want to about what these weird words at the top, mahalath and maskal, actually mean. We, we can have those conversations. There's fruit to that. But regardless of whatever they mean, the actual text of the song, it's pretty dark, right? This is, this is not in a happy, upbeat thing. David is not celebrating a hopeful moment here. He looks out on the horizon, and all he can see are people walking in unrighteousness walking in what he calls an abominable iniquity. And while iniquity is a word that people probably don't fully grasp the weight of, I'm pretty certain that abominable is also one of those words. Um, there's not a person in, in the room who didn't hear that word and immediately think Yeti, right? Right? Am I wrong? I'm not wrong, right? Yeah, so that, that, we got this pop culture reference that makes us, that draws our attention, draws our mind to this cute little thing. Uh, like there's even a movie about a Yeti called Abominable, right? And so it's this misunderstood thing and all that kind of stuff, right? But regardless of however the word might be used in popular culture, that's not what that word actually means. The actual definition of abominable is revulsive. Revulsive. It's a word that describes an involuntary reaction to something, something that turns your stomach in knots. It's, it's morally reprehensible. It causes disgust in the viewer. So what gets this lovely adjective? What earns this little title? Iniquity. Iniquity is another one of those fun words that we don't use much in our culture. We, we, we didn't define it last week, even though it was in our text. We kind of used it interchangeably for sin. But the truth is, is that iniquity is, is it's, it's not just sin. They're, they're not equal words there. Iniquity is, is bigger and darker. Iniquity is, is a perverse dishonesty. A cruel and conscious pattern of injustice. David looks out on the horizon and he doesn't just see little picadillos, little, little mini sins. He sees utter sinfulness. So he says to himself, there is none who does good. There is not a positive example to be found. Yeah, you tell him, David. Like, don't you want to? 
Don't you want to agree with him sometimes? Like, watch the news tonight. Don't you agree with David? Everywhere I look, sin is before me. When I look out at the culture surrounding me, I see the same thing. Everybody is walking in utter sinfulness, open and defiant sin. This world is a mess. You're right, David. You go get them. Except David includes himself in this little equation. David's not merely pointing fingers at, at his neighbors. See, David knows his own heart. What, you remember Psalm 51 that we read earlier? But isn't David one of the good guys? Yeah, and he's also a train wreck. Both are true. David's an absolute train wreck. David has to repent of grotesque sin two psalms before this. But isn't David a man after God's own heart? Yeah, and Psalm 51 happens because David is also a murderer and an adulterer. He was a terrible king that, through his kingly actions, ended up causing ruin in his own kingdom. Lives are ruined. People are actually murdered. Terrible things happen because of David's sin. And Israel suffers for it. And then the guy had the nerve to try to hide it until God sent a prophet to out him in the middle of the king's court. Thought he could get away with it. I'll agree with you that David is one of the good guys, absolutely. But I think if you ever get the chance to meet David yourself, he'll tell you that he shouldn't be trusted. He knows his own heart. David knew what he was capable of when he wrote this psalm. He includes himself in the indictment, there is none who does good. So how did we get here? Like, like shouldn't there be things that we could celebrate? Yeah, yeah there are lows, but sh- there, there are also highs, right? Like, we got some dark days, but look at all these really good days over here. How did we get to a point where David comes to the realization there is none, including himself, there is none who does good? And David gives us the answer. He says, by foolishly thinking there is no God. Now, I know the culture we live in. I know my own heart here. There are some who are going to read that and immediately think, immediately set their sights on a formalized atheism. And I think that's certainly in view here, but I also think that we hurt ourselves deeply if we think that that's all David is talking about. This is the garden. This is the garden. This is, this is I will be a God unto myself. I, I don't answer to anyone. I don't answer to anything. I am the master of my fate, thank you, and I am going to pursue joy on my own terms. Get out of my way. I'll go get it myself. This prideful claim that there is no God is, I think has less to do with, an, with intellectually rejecting the idea of a divine being and instead way more to do with functionally living as if there is no divine king and judge that you've got to answer to. It's a self-exaltation that reaches for the fruit because nobody but you gets to define what is good and evil for you. And a functional atheism? The reality is that a functional atheism will always lead to devastating sin. Always. 
It leads to an abominable iniquity, a revulsive and perverse pattern of sin and injustice. Always. It is its end. It doesn't matter if if atheism is wearing formal clothes or it's dressed up in a self-righteous, self-centered Christian religiosity. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the end is always going to end up being the book of Judges. Always. When everyone is a king unto themselves, when everyone is a god unto themselves, uh, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the pattern is always going to emerge the same way. The book of Judges. You end up enslaved to your sin. You end up enslaved to those around you. And it may take a little while for it to get there, but it is coming every time. Attitudes and actions may not have reached their logical conclusions yet, but they eventually will. Over and over and over and over again. You can can call it full-on anarchy. You can call it your local HOA. You can call it organized religion or just the wild west of social media. When people live as gods unto themselves, it will never take long before iniquity becomes a celebrated norm. And while it may be celebrated by everyone else, God has a different definition for it. Abominable. I mean, isn't that a little presumptuous, Stephen? I mean, surely that's not true for everybody. I mean, David's just one guy. He lives in one part of the world and in, in one part of history. Surely he doesn't see the whole picture. And surely his biases are in view here, right? Doesn't that, doesn't that cloud his observation any? I mean, surely there's some innocent folk out there somewhere, right? I mean, surely, we're, we're more pluralistic than that. But David's not the only one who's going to talk in this psalm, and so the, God chimes in himself in verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So, so there's, this, there's this common yeah, but that often gets thrown around when we have this conversation about God's justice and, and judgment, right? And so uh, and everybody already knows what that yeah, but is. And so what about the innocent man in the middle of Africa or in the middle of a, an island in the, in the Pacific Ocean? What about that guy? What about the innocent person who's never heard this and never had opportunity to, to act on this? What about that guy, right? And we talked about this at length in here before, over and over again, actually. And so I could recap that, but I already dropped Spurgeon's name once today. I'll do it again. Um, Spurgeon was a much more eloquent preacher than I'll ever dream of being. Uh, he, he had something to say about this little reality. And so in his commentary on these two verses, he says this, Had there been one understanding man, one true lover of God, the divine eye would have discovered him. Those pure heathens and admirable savages that people talk about live nowhere but in the realm of fiction. The Lord did not look for great grace, only for sincerity and right desire, but these he found not. He saw all people and all hearts of all people and all motions of all hearts, but he saw neither a clear head nor a clean heart among them all. Where God's eyes see no favorable sign, we may rest assured there is none." See, what often gets lost in the conversation about human innocence is the fact that God has already spoken on the matter. 
There's none who does good. And then he doubles down. Not even one. Not even one. This is our spiritual reality. Innocence, spiritually speaking, is nothing but fiction. At least when it's based on anything man can produce for himself. Whether someone wants to, to present themselves as religious or, or morally irreligious, doesn't matter. There is none who does good, not even one. And so if innocence is off the table, what do we have left? And sadly, the answer is found in verses 4 and 5. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you and put them to shame, for God has rejected them. So according to this, the fool can't even get out of their own way. They can't. An apathy towards God will eventually lead to a hatred of God. A hatred of God will eventually lead to a hatred towards God's people. And a hatred towards God's people will eventually flesh itself out. It always ends up here. It will eventually flesh itself out in actions against God's people. Eat them up as they eat bread, David says. But have you ever gotten finished eating a big meal and then immediately started to regret it? The bigger boys in the room know what I'm talking about. You had this moment where you're like, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. That's the picture here. It's a meal that the unrighteous are going to end up wishing that they had not consumed. In verse 5, we, we, we get some poetic images of God's response. He, we're told that he rejects the foolish, right? We, we see that, that the army is fearful and that God scatters their bones. He puts them to shame. And yeah, those, those are poetic images to be sure. But whatever they're supposed to poetically image, poetically represent, it doesn't sound fun, right? Anybody looking forward to that day? Terror? If you have a different translation, it might remember that word is dread. And all these years later, we're blessed with having, having and knowing the entirety of the Bible whenever we read the Old Testament. So, so not, not every generation of God's people has had that available to them, but God has blessed us in, with that privilege. And so we get the opportunity to, the, to look back on the, on the promise in the Psalms, this one specifically, even while remembering that, that in, in the back of our minds that God has promised another day of dread to come, Right? We, we get a fuller scope of the picture, and we know that this is not an empty promise. He's promised even more than this. He's promised a day when, when all the injustices of the world will be fully and forever made right. Every single one of them. While we may work towards some of these things now, that we will never reach their full justice in this life. And so he promises to fulfill those then. And the ones that we can't fulfill now and can't even attempt to fulfill now, he has promised their full and final fix on that day. It's also a day when every foolish 
functional atheist will stand before the throne of the perfect judge and give an account for how they lived. A full account. And on that day, it won't matter what clothing someone is dressed in, whether it's the clothing of secular humanism or your preferred branch of religious and political morality. It will not matter. The Bible promises that on that day, if your clothing is anything other than the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ given to you by grace through faith in his finished work on the cross, if it's not that clothing, if it's anything other than that clothing, you're in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. And on that day, your bones will be scattered. That's a picture that likely doesn't land as heavy in our culture as it did the one it was first written in, right? You step outside of Western culture for a second, and the actions of funeral rites in, become much more important. Um, they, they matter in other cultures more than it, than it matters to us. Uh, you step outside of Western culture, and, and funeral rites are, are this thing that's uh, not just important, but necessary for a soul to have rest, Right? As Christians, we don't actually believe that. Uh, we, we think that what you do with a body matters. It, it ought to be treated with respect. It ought to be treated with, with honor and with, with gentleness. But like if hypothetically speaking, someone were to, to come and cruelly scatter the bones of, uh, of a loved one out, we, we would see that as disrespectful, but we wouldn't see that as something that, that stopped them, prevented them from, uh, from achieving rest in an afterlife, right? That, that's not the way we view those things. It doesn't slow God down. He's not perturbed by that. In, in any kind of way. But that belief is present in many cultures today, and it certainly was present in many, many cultures when this was first written, when this psalm was written. So the idea here of the dead having their bones scattered is a very deliberate warning that their suffering, it doesn't end on that day. It continues. Rest will not come. It doesn't end at death. There is no rest after death for the unrighteous. The day of dread to come, it is only the very beginning of an eternal recompense. The infinite debt of wrath that is being stored up for the foolish will be collected in full. And so the massive question that needs to be answered this morning is this. How do we avoid being the fool? Right? If the fool says in his heart there is no God, how do we avoid that? Verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Zion is a, is a nickname that's used in a few different ways throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used to, to speak of the land of Israel. Sometimes it's used to speak of God's people as a whole, as a nation. Uh, here, though, it, it seems to be zeroing in on some stuff and specifically talking about the city of Jerusalem or, or, or maybe more more precisely, the, the mountain that Jerusalem sits on, all right? I think, we, I think that's a fair argument. And so um, we're not sure when in David's timeline that he wrote this psalm, but uh, no matter which way you slice it, Jerusalem hasn't been the center of action for very long. 
Uh, it's kind of a new place, right? Uh, it, it's an old city, obviously, but that it wasn't until David's day that it became the center of life and the center of government and the center of religion for the Jewish people. David was the very first leader to make Jerusalem a big deal. Uh, he brought the ark there. He, he built the tabernacle of David there. He built his own palace there. Uh, the, the temple wasn't built in his time, but if, and it's a big if, if he wrote Psalm 53 towards the end of his life, then maybe he was already putting plans in place for the temple uh, to be on a mountain in Jerusalem by this point, maybe that was already going on in his mind and in his, in his to-do list, all right? And so uh, either way you slice it, though, no matter where it lands in the timeline of David, Jerusalem is kind of a new place for them. It would have been a brand new idea that, that God's people would have received hope or help from Jerusalem. But what's really interesting to me is that the most powerful man in Jerusalem is looking for hope outside of himself. Is, is there anybody on the planet right now during the moment that David is writing this psalm that can do more to affect what God's people are going through? Not a soul. Is there anyone on the planet when David is writing this psalm that can do more to benefit God's people and restore God's people and protect God's people than David? Not even close. And David is looking for hope outside of himself. David is looking for hope outside of himself. The king of Israel understands that their hope must come from someone greater than the king. But it's not just hope he's looking for, he's also looking for salvation. Or in other translations, for deliverance. The Hebrew word for salvation there is the word Yeshua. About a thousand-ish years after David pins these words, after David makes these plea, an angel is going to show up to a young virgin girl and tell her that she's going to name her God-given son something very, very similar, right? Whether David knows it or not, David's plea is going to be answered, and it's going to be answered on that mountain. As David looks out on the horizon, he knows what terrible state our hearts are in. Everywhere he turns, including looking at his very own heart, he sees an abominable iniquity. He sees the foolishness that, that rejects the true king and vainly tries to supplant him with our own temporary fiefdoms. And he sees the ruin that it always produces. He sees the atrocities and the injustices that always arise out of that posture. He sees the pain and he sees the heartache that it always produces for God's people. And he sees the promised wrath upon those who aren't God's people. But he also, David also looks out on the horizon and he sees a coming salvation for those who aren't foolish. Salvation is going to put on flesh and dwell among us. He, he's going to stand alone as the only one in all of history who has been righteous. That no, not one doesn't apply to him. Right? He is the only one who does good, and he will die on the cross as a substitute to make payment for the sins of the unrighteous. 
And we talked about this, talked last week about how in the Bible wisdom is, is described as a, as a Godward life, right? It's, it's not common sense, it's not street smarts, it's not good advice passed down to those coming after you. Biblical wisdom is a life where your thoughts and your actions flow first out of a, a fear of the Lord, and then secondly, that keeps everything else in its proper place, right? And so if, if foolishness is functionally living as if there is no God for you to answer to, wisdom then is living every single moment, every breath, as if you answer to him already. Or we could say it this way, wisdom, true biblical wisdom, is stepping off stepping down from the throne and giving it back to the one it actually belongs to. It's not yours. You can't keep it if you tried. Might as well give up now. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can change that. You can step down from that throne. You can, you can respond to him by repenting of your sin and by trusting in his work on your behalf. You can submit to him as Savior and Lord this morning. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for specifically laid out for us to respond to God's word. And, and, and you can use that moment. You can use that, that specific time to meet Jesus. You, you don't need me, but man, I'd love to be helpful to you. For those in the room, I'm going to be standing down front down here. If you're, if you're watching us online, you can, you can respond to us in the comments section or use the contact forms that we, we've got. You, you don't need me. You can respond to Jesus all on your own right now. But man, I'd love to be helpful. I'd love to help you walk through and figure out what that response of faith actually looks like. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How do we respond to God's word this morning? The answer is the same way we do every week, by, by repenting of sin and by leaning into his goodness. Oh, hear me. Functional atheism may actually be more dangerous than the formal kind. It really may. Because at least the other guys are honest. At least all their cards are on the table. Sometimes the most valuable thing a follower of Jesus can do is take a real moment and intentionally think through whether or not we actually live as though we will one day give an account to our king. Is that true? Yes, amen, lean on his grace. That is our only hope. But then in that security, actually follow him as Lord. Does your heart produce actions that lean more towards an abominable iniquity or towards an, uh, the otherworldly fragrance of an eternal kingdom? Oh God, would you restore the fortunes of your people? Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Would you do a mighty work here? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. However God is calling you to respond this morning, let's do that as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 53. God, like David, I, I know my heart. I know what is in me. I know what it produces. I need your grace. 
need you to keep my eyes locked on you rather than the things going on around me. Not because it keeps me from being like those other guys, but because you're my only hope. God, would you protect me from a functional atheism that forgets so quickly that I'm a servant of a, of a king rather than the king himself. Do you help me to see that my salvation, my hope lies outside of me and instead rests in you and what you've done for me? God, would you help us as a, as a church family be that fragrant scent of a different kingdom? One that doesn't turn the stomach, but actually invites into the fold. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to know? God, would you call people to yourself right now? Whether they're in the room or they're watching us online, would you, in your bigness and in your goodness, expand your kingdom now? Give us the courage to take this step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.